Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Earlier today, we uh, spoke with Houston Police Chief Art Acevedo to discuss the current situation in Houston on the ground uh, as Hurricane Harvey continues to rain down destruction on southeast Texas. We started by asking what the most pressing problems were for the Houston Police Department as they continue to rescue thousands of people. The issue for us is obviously uh, capacity. You know, we've, we've had so many resources trying to get here throughout the state and country, but Flash flooding and flooding has impacted not just the city of Houston, but our entire region, a big part of our state. And so, you know, we're running on fumes, but uh, we're still getting it done. And our department alone already has about uh, 3,600 rescues. So right now you're saying that there are backup efforts uh, trying to get to you, but cannot. Does that include supplies as well that are trying to get to you? Uh, we're, we're having a difficult time getting supplies through to, to the uh, city and through the region. Uh, unfortunately, this storm has sat here for days now, but it also impacted uh, other roadways. And so we leave convoys over the last few days of uh, people and equipment and supplies have had a real challenge getting here. I'm, I mean, it's still pouring down rain here in downtown Houston. I'm on my way to the HEC, sorry, Emergency Communication Center, and that's becoming a problem. And uh, we've got a bunch of our stations now. I think we have four or five that we had to evacuate. So it's just one one challenge above after the other. But, uh, you know, we're rising to the task, and uh, we'll get to it with the help of our fellow Texans and, the, and our fellow Americans that are coming here to help. Chief Acevedo, uh, speak a little bit, if you can, in detail about what's going on at the uh, George Brown Convention Center. And also, if you can just give us an update on things like electric and uh, communications networks, airports, and so on. Yeah, well, the airports are still shut down. They're only going to be open for uh, uh, humanitarian and search and, and obviously, uh, response uh, flights, which means that people are coming here to help us. Uh, the George R. Brown Center is uh, at capacity. We have, I think, around 9,000 folks there, but we're starting to open uh, other shelters, and uh, we'll start transporting uh, uh, evacuees to those places. Uh, our water supply is still intact, but you know how that goes. You just never know what will happen. We know that historically, uh, at some point in these storms, anywhere in the country, you end up having a disruption of water supply. So people should, if they, if they, uh, uh, if they can, uh, make you know try to store some of their own in your bathtub or containers, whatever you can in your home. Uh, some of the cell towers are starting to uh, fail. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's what you would expect, a myriad of uh, one challenge after the other. But I'm very proud of the fact that our city, our region, and our men and women in the Houston Police Department, our first responding community are, are still working. And they've been working nonstop since Friday. What about the main public hospitals? Uh, well, uh, we've had to evacuate. Uh, I know of at least one uh, major hospital evacuated, but, you know, we've, uh, one of the things that the blessing uh, that we have here in the city of Houston is that our, uh, our medicine here is uh, world-renowned. We've got some of the best doctors and nurses, uh, you know, from around the world, and uh, there's a reason that foreign leaders uh, come here uh, for treatment. And so we have a lot of uh, capacity, and uh, we've been able to successfully transfer patients uh, safely from facilities that had to be uh, shut down. What kind of aid have you already received uh, from the federal government, and what are you expecting? 
Well, the relief is that's coming, and we've got uh, people here on the ground, some still trying to get here. We know we have supplies uh, coming. Uh, we, we have rescue vehicles here. We've got uh, uh, National Guard high, high, high water vehicles here. But the, the currents have been strong for folks are trying to rescue folks. So it's just uh, although we have the help, obviously uh, we don't have enough help. Chief, what's the best way that people who are listening to you can help? Well, one of the things, we don't need more people self-dispatching uh, self, uh, themselves to the region. Uh, because number one, trying to get here is, uh, is precarious uh, at best. And uh, what we need is people to you know, donate to the Red Cross, go to the City of Houston website, and uh, donate uh, food. And obviously the recovery for our, the poor citizens that, uh, and residents of uh, this state that have lost everything, uh, they're going to need financial assistance. And so anything you can give. You know, it's uh, we'll, we'll we'll pay it forward. And just lastly, uh, how are you fixed for fuel, for food, for medicine, for you and for all of your colleagues? You know what? It's a challenge, but we're balancing it. It's really interesting. You know, some a pizza place uh, brought pizza to our folks yesterday, and uh, some guy said, "Well, some citizens, well, the rest of the city's starving. There, you guys are eating pizza." What he doesn't know is that our folks have been going, not going home since Friday. Their families are flooded. Their families have been evacuated. If we can't feed our first responders, then nobody's going to respond to a lot of people that are still in peril. So it's a challenge to get all these things done. Our officers have been they're, they're out of uniforms. We need help trying to get uh, these uniforms washed because uh, they've been contaminated. They've been in uh, chest-high water rescuing people. And so we're not making excuses, and we're not going to stop, and we're not going to rest until this job gets done. That was Art Acevedo. He is the chief of police for the city of Houston as those rescue and relief efforts continue. And Lisa, just to note, you know, the seaports in Houston, as well as in Corpus Christi, they've been closed to most ships before Harvey made landfall last Friday. This means a lot of rerouting for those ships, for the freighters also. Uh, rail traffic has been suspended. Uh, UPS has suspended freight service in Houston and Beaumont, Texas. So there's going to be not only a humanitarian an issue that needs to be dealt with, but there's also going to be an untangling of transport uh, transport lines and transport networks. Indeed, and the uh, police department in Houston sure has a lot going on. They've uh, rescued more than 3,000 people, and uh, there are reports coming out uh, today that there have been looters that have been violent uh, that they're also trying to deal with, so uh, quite, a, quite a situation that's unfolding. Uh, also, there is a question of what the death toll is so far. It has remained remained uh, fairly limited, but many are expecting the numbers to rise. So uh, definitely uh, a tragic situation right now unfolding. Yeah, and some forecasters are saying that Houston will see another two feet of rain as it continues to pummel the area. Amazing. And this will obviously also raise uh, questions about how this will get paid for and uh, flood insurance, which is currently uh, provided by the U.S. government in an underfunded and actuarially unsound program the NFIP.
Let's turn our attention now to the energy markets. Right now, NYMEX gasoline is higher by more than 2%, though crude oil is falling 1.5%. Here to help explain all this is Stephen Shork. He is the president of the Shork Group, and he joins us now. Stephen, thanks very much for being with us. So just uh, briefly explain the divergence, because on the surface, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but I know it does. Well, absolutely. Uh, Hurricanes historically tend to be very bearish for the stuff you put into the refinery, crude oil, and very bullish for the stuff you take out of the refinery, that is the product. And this is because, of course, refineries now in the Gulf Coast epicenter, a good majority of them now, or a good share of them, I should say, are shut in. So when a refinery shuts in, a refinery is the only person in the world that actually buys crude oil, physical crude oil. So when you have that much capacity right now shut in, and right now the capacity that is linked to the New York Mercantile Exchange, one out of every four barrels of refining capacity is now shut in. So that's a lot of crude oil that's floating around here. But the real big difference between this hurricane and the last hurricane that we saw in this region, 2008 with Hurricane Ike and Hurricane uh, Gustav, was the reversal of a major pipeline. Back in 2008, we used to take crude oil into the Houston market area and ship it up to the middle part of the country and into the Chicago market area. We reversed that pipeline in 2012. So now there's a lot of oil that comes from Canada and from the upper Midwest down into the Houston market to go to those refineries and then go to the export market. So now with the situation of the refineries being shut in, so you can't boil that oil, and with the ports closed, you can't export that crude oil, we are now in the process of building a very large glut in crude oil prices, hence why we're seeing the um, uh, bearish reaction in the crude oil market. Conversely, as we said, if you can't boil crude oil, well, you can't make gasoline or diesel fuel, hence why those markets are rallying over the past few days. Right. Uh, Stephen, that's fascinating. I'm looking right now at crude uh, at a little bit less than $46 a barrel. Are you uh, thinking that perhaps this price will go substantially lower should the closures of these refineries uh, get prolonged for, for several weeks or more? Yes, I do, because we also have to appreciate what time of the year we are at. We are now approaching the Labor Day holiday, which now means the summer holiday driving season is over. So gasoline demand was about to fall regardless. That means we're also heading into September, October, which is the fall maintenance season for the refineries. So the refineries were already starting to pare back purchases because they were going to go into maintenance. And so, of course, when a refinery is in maintenance, it's not boiling oil. It's not buying oil. So therefore, with what this hurricane, and if we see prolonged stoppages in in this, we're just, these stoppages are just going to roll over into the maintenance season. So we could see a prolonged maintenance season and a tremendous amount of demand destruction already on top of what we're experiencing. So how low do you expect crude uh, values to go in that scenario? Uh, In that scenario, if we take out – now, normally between now and Halloween, we could expect crude oil demand by U.S. refineries here in um, the fall uh, anywhere between 800,000 barrels a day, upwards of over 1.2 million barrels a day. So if you take that normal uh, seasonal demand destruction and then you you compound it by extended closures because of of, uh, hurricane-related damage, then certainly we're now at the bottom of the range. We're in that 
that mid $40 range. This is exactly where crude oil has more or less found support over the past two and a half years. We have had some outliers, some dips below 40, even a dip below 30. I'm certainly not expecting a dip below 30, but any sort of prolonged outage, both uh, related to refinery capacity and also the export market with, with the port closures and, and pipeline issues, we could certainly see that $40 barrier tested in a perfect scenario. Well, Stephen, maybe just to expand on that, because some uh, weather forecasters say that uh, Houston and the uh, that area in Texas could see another two feet of rain. How long does it take to restart one of these refineries and what kind of safety checks do they need to go through in order to even start that process? Right. Now, the good news here is, unlike 2005 with Hurricane Katrina, on that Friday, if we recall, everyone was expecting, every meteorologist thought that storm was going into the Florida panhandle. It took a nasty turn over the weekend, and by Sunday, of course, it devastated New Orleans and the oil and gas infrastructure in that area. The good news here is this storm was well followed, so the industry uh, initiated its emergency protocols in a timely fashion. They shut down in a timely fashion. Even better, unlike Katrina, this storm did not develop into a monster Cat 4 uh, storm until it was close to the shore. So you're not going to get – it didn't have enough time to build up that wall of seawater to to flood the areas – I mean, it could have been, what I'm saying is it could have been a lot worse. So that said, the ongoing rain, Tim, is a problem because right now the closures with the refineries are in the Corpus Christi, uh, which is west of Houston, up to Houston. Now with the track of all of this rain, we're moving towards the uh, Texas-Louisiana border. So that's going to threaten the Port Arthur-Beaumont-Texas refinery epicenter. That's another 1.5 million barrels of refinery capacity. And then if we go into the Louisiana to the Mississippi Coast refinery, epicenter. That's another 3.7 million barrels a day of demand. So that's a considerable amount of capacity that is in the wake of the storm that is susceptible to flooding. So we are by no means out of the woods. So that said, this is still a bullish event for gasoline prices. Stephen Shork, thank you so much for joining us. Stephen Shork is president of the Shork Group, also the author of the Shork Report. Overnight, uh, North Korea did do another missile test, and this time it went over Japan. Japan called this unprecedented. And uh, here to give us a little more perspective on how this changes the backdrop for the U.S. negotiations and dealings with North Korea is Brad Taylor. He's retired Special Forces Lieutenant Colonel, uh, also author of Ghosts of War, which is available in paperback uh, now. And uh, Brad, thank you so much for joining us. I know that you were part of the Combined Unconventional Warfare Task Force review of how the U.S. is dealing with North Korea. And I would love to get your sense of how much this latest provocation from North Korea ups the ante, ups the tension, and changes the backdrop for the U.S.'s dealings with that region. Well, it it, uh, ups the tensions quite a bit just because of the tensions where we're at right now. It just amplifies it. But it's not, uh, you know, Japan screaming about it being unprecedented. It's actually the third time a missile has gone over Japan, so it's not entirely unprecedented. In the past, they always said they were launching a satellite. Uh, No satellite made it into space, so at least they were willing to camouflage the fact that they were testing a missile. This time they just launched a missile and didn't say anything about a satellite. So it's definitely a poke in the eye. Uh, Some of the unique things of it, they launched this thing from uh, Pyongyang right outside the International Airport which uh, in the past they've always launched them 
out in the hinterlands and the military bases. Basically, they're saying, you know, if you want to do a first strike on us, you're going to have to take out Pyongyang, which definitely amps up our capabilities for a first strike. If you were going to write this as a novel with a happy ending, what would it be like? And then you can give us the alternative. <laughs> I don't think there is a happy ending for this one. <laughs> they're not going to give up their nuclear missiles. They've seen what happens when other regimes give up their nuclear missiles. Muammar Gaddafi gave up his missiles, and, you know, 10 years later we came, we saw he died. Uh, Saddam Hussein gave his up. We took his regime down. So he wants the missiles. For him, the, the missiles are intertwined with his regime's stability. So when we say either get rid of the missiles or lose your regime, that's the same thing to him. Getting rid of his missiles, it means the loss of his regime. So he's, it's really off the table. Now, he'll certainly do talks, and we'll do bilateral talks and six-party talks and all that kind of stuff, but he's going to keep marching forward. So uh, what is a better case scenario than a catastrophic altercation that leaves thousands and thousands of people dead uh, in the region at this point? Well, the best case would be if China, you know, China has all the leverage in North Korea. And if China started leveraging the sanctions, we, we, you know, this is our seventh set of sanctions, and they were all voted you know, um, unanimously, so that's not unprecedented either. What happens, though, is Russia and China fail to enforce their part of the sanctions. Why? The problem with that is it's not in China's interest to enforce the sanctions. They do not want uh, – I mean, sanctions work because you struggle – you uh, hammer the people so much the, the leadership decides to change. Well, in this case, the leadership doesn't care about the people, so the only way the leadership would change is if the people overturn the leadership. And China definitely does not want that. What China does not want, it's against their interest to have a unified Korean peninsula underneath the sway of South Korea. Right. Well, I mean, we were talking uh, with Jay Lefkowitz uh, a couple weeks ago, who was the uh, former uh, human rights envoy to North Korea for the U.S. And he was saying, look, the U.S. has to drop this uh, unified Korean peninsula concept entirely to get China on board. Do you have any sense that the U.S. is taking that approach and is moving closer to some kind of agreement with China that would actually tighten the screws on this situation in a non-catastrophic way? I think they're doing it right now. China, historically, when they sign a new sanction, they go ahead and do it, and then something will go along later on, a couple years down the road, and they'll start slipping up on it. So on the surface, yes, they're all going to be on board. One thing that wasn't reported, the Russians actually flew a fleet of nuclear-capable bombers out of the Sea of Japan. They got intercepted by South Korean uh, fighter jets during the exercises we are doing last week. So they're, they're playing the game, too. Do you have any idea what exactly does the leader of North Korea want from all of this? I, what I think he wants is just to survive. That's what he's looking at. His, his sole function in life is regime survivability. His father was the same way. His grandfather, who started the country, was the same way. That's what they want. So is it possible that there is some way that either the United States, China, uh, South Korea could ensure his survivability and say, all right, survive, keep your weapons, just don't launch them? Well, yeah, that's one school of thought is exactly that. We might as well live with it. We lived with it with Russia. We lived with it with Pakistan, all these other nuclear-capable countries. But the problem is, you know, his thing is if he thinks his regime's going down, he's going to launch everything he's got. He's going out with a blaze of glory, uh, which makes it very hard to do any kind of provocative actions against him. So he launches a missile over Japan. We know it's not going to hit anything. That's a provocative act. If we try to do the same thing to him, he's liable to trigger and say they're attacking me. How much closer are we to a nuclear altercation at this point? I don't think we're close to a nuclear altercation. Uh, but what people fail to remember is that uh, he's got 5,000 tons of chemical and biological weapons. He's got enough devastation there. He doesn't even need to use a nuke. Uh, and if, it, if he launched all that into South Korea, most of South Korea 
the population is within the artillery fan of North Korea. And you can't, doesn't matter if you have a THAAD missile system, a Patriot battery, whatever, you're not taking out artillery. It's going to be devastation on a biblical scale. Well, Brad, let's say you get the call from the White House and they uh, underscore that they don't, they're not playing politics here. They just want an assessment of what you would recommend be done. And there's no issue about whether someone comes out looking good, bad, or, you know, whether they made the right decision in the past. I think the first thing that needs to be done is that the administration needs to get on the same sheet of music about what signals they're sending. When Rex Tillerson says we have no reason or have no desire for regime change, we want you to talk, come on, let's talk, and then President Trump says, I'm going to rain fire and fury on you, that the opposing party's seeing both those signals, and now he's trying to read. What, is, what does that mean? Am I getting fire and fury, or do they want to talk? Well, was it sort of encouraging to you that we did not get an immediate response from President Trump via Twitter, uh, but after a marked and noted silence, there was a very uh, thought-out statement that came from the White House instead? Yeah, I was. And I actually thought about it. Now, he's called the Hermit Kingdom for a reason, so he's definitely ensconced in his own little world there. Uh, but he does get news, and I wondered to myself, was, has he seen the devastation from Hurricane Harvey and thought, this would be the time I can do this with a little blowback because they got their hands full. I don't know if he's that smart or not, but it did cross my mind. Is there anything that the South Koreans should be doing that would make the situation less perilous? They're doing, they're doing pretty much what they want. They have a new president in there right now, although he did do a pretty provocative act. When the missile went off, he launched a bunch of uh, – the exercise going on is the LT Freedom Guardian, which is really a tabletop map exercise. It happens biannually. It's not that big a deal. But when he launched the missiles, um, the president ordered a F-15 strike to simulate destruction of the regime. So I'm not sure that was a smart thing to do. It sounds as if you're, you're saying that there's no one person in charge who can really make these kinds of thoughtful decisions, or am I wrong? No, it's because it's super complicated. We'd like the world to be black and white, but it's a complicated situation. And everybody there has a vested interest that is not in the same vested interest of another party. So China has a lot of sway there, but China's goals are not our goals. We have sway. Our goals are not Russia's goals. Uh, so there's just a lot of, you know, it's just a gray area. It's, it's really hard to solve. I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, Brad Taylor is an author and consultant. He served more than 20 years as a U.S. Army officer and also participated in the Combined Unconventional Warfare Task Force of a Unified Plan for Defense of the Korean Peninsula. All right, let's turn our attention to the world of luxury. And uh, to help us do so, we have Bob Shulman. He is the founder of the Shulman Research Center. They're based in Riverside, Connecticut. And the latest report is Insights, Brief Insights into Luxury, Affluence, Wealth, and More. And to tell us more, Bob is joining us here in our studio. Bob, thanks for being here. Delighted to be here. Before we get into any of the results of the study, I'm wondering if you could just parse out who are the people that were surveyed and do they really count as the wealthy shoppers, the wealthy consumers in the United States? We surveyed approximately 1,750 consumers, and we structured it in such a way that we were able to focus not only on people with what I would call high incomes and wealth, but also what I call mass market Americans, people with what we call more average incomes, who also treat themselves to entry-level luxuries, 
which are very important to the big luxury brands. I mean, a lot of people don't focus it on it, but if you speak to the people at some of the major luxury companies like LVMH or Kering, uh, they do care about mass market Americans. There's like 180 million of them versus the people with high incomes and wealth. And they buy a lot of champagne. They buy a lot of kerchiefs. They buy a lot of, I'll call it entry-level, high-end watches. They matter. Yeah, well, and, and but Bob, you know, the the survey is certainly uh, matters and is interesting, I'm sure, to wealthy individuals themselves, but much more so to these brands that you're talking about, right? This is really the audience that is curious of how the appetites are changing for these luxury purchases. And, uh, you know, in your latest survey, what were some of the most notable aspects that were different than prior Well, surveys? more and more, I mean, shopping, and that's really what you, the brands care about how American consumers shop for their products and services. The shopping behaviors continue to go more and more. There's two aspects, the search and the actual buy. And searching is almost universally done online today. And from my observations over the years, the digital brand, the luxury brands have been slower than many other brands to embrace digital because most of luxury's heritage is based upon quote-unquote exclusivity. And they've had a difficult time coming to grips with the fact that even some of the older, wealthier customers who buy the high-end brands where they have great margins are now doing their initial shopping online, and they care about how things look online and their ability to basically buy online. Is there a natural uh, diversion between those that are seeking experiences that already own all the luxury stuff they want and perhaps younger shoppers or younger consumers? Oh, clearly. I mean, when you get to some of the, we'll call it older, wealthier people who have closets full of some of the beautiful brands, drawers full of the nice jewelry, uh, effectively those people have the opportunity to travel much more. And they're also getting more into the, what I call, expressive parts of their life. When we look at, you know, depending on how you define wealth, but recently we looked at 5 million plus, which is a high-end group. There's only about 4 million people in America, uh, adults who basically fall into that. It's a very elite group, one of whom is our ex-president Bush, but they're into painting, they're into doing things that they want to do because when you get to a certain level, you no longer have any obstacles to buying the products or services you want. And depending upon how you grew up and your education level and experiences, you start looking at things that the average American can't do because they don't have the wherewithal. So, Bob, I have to wonder, are there any luxury brands that are trying to cater to uh, that type of activity, say painting or uh, taking, you know, cruises, luxury cruises or uh, having experiences that people have always wanted to do and they have the money to well, do it? Well, more and more you're seeing some of the major what I would call luxury groups like LVMH and Keering do it. I mean, to me, one of the major, I'll call it 
changes uh, was when LVMH launched 24 Sever, which is their website that basically puts all their brands in one spot so a consumer doesn't have to hunt and peck for the brands they're looking for. I don't think many people are aware, but LVMH did something like that like 15 years ago, and they were ahead of their time. Now, depending on how you look at it, they're behind the times. But, you know, the people are getting with it. LVMH hired somebody out of Apple. I mean, these brands and these groups can do it when they realize the shoppers are changing. You know, the future for them are the millennials and eventually Gen Z. And these younger people don't necessarily have the time or the desire at this time in their life to go to stores. They need to get them to try their brands, whether it's taking an entry-level cruise or taking, uh, going to a pop-up store that sells, like way back when Hermes sold in Grand Central, they sold three items, a $250 kerchief, a men's tie, and one other thing, as I remember, but they were in the corner of Grand Central, and the place was mobbed with younger people who never saw an Hermes store. They need to get out there. And the way to get out there today, whether they like it or not, includes digital. Sports. I want you to tell us about sporting events, sporting activities. Very important. Again, they get the opportunity to, depending on how you look at it, relive their youths, depending upon the teams they were into. When you look at the really wealthy people, the vast majority worked very hard to accumulate the wealth. When they get older, and if they're even younger and retire, or step out, we'll say, they now have the opportunity to enjoy what they did, where you know most Americans don't ever accumulate that. The smart ones take the time and start basically experiencing and using their wealth for their own enjoyment, their family's enjoyment, and frankly, the fellow who owns this company, gives it away because his attitude is, I can't take it with me. <laughs> Bob Shulman, thank you so much for taking the time. Bob Shulman is founder of the Shulman Research Center in Riverside, Connecticut, that looks at the trends in luxury spending. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.